The theme for the afternoon talk is the four truths of the noble ones. For those who take any preliminary interest in the Dharma, will probably sooner rather than later uh, come across this often used phrase, the four noble truths. But on first glance, one would hardly refer to the uh, first or second truth as noble. The first one is the Pali word for this is dukkha, means the problems, suffering, unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness, the range of human difficulties which enter into our life cause us a difficulty and a, a distress. And the shorthand has become the Four Noble Truths, but more precisely, for men and women where there is realisation, genuine uh, interest and exploration of life, the inquiry into circumstances and various uh, conditions, much discovery can come. And in, that, uh, in the discoveries which come, the problems of life genuinely, truly uh, diminish, the heart uh, opens and expands, our mind uh, develops in a caring and thoughtful way and the sense of happiness and freedom of the being is much more obvious and apparent uh, to us. <coughs> and so really it's more precisely the four truths of the noble ones, those who are genuinely living a noble way of life in which uh, ethics is a, a strong and paramount foundation where wisdom and awareness, meditation is a real feature of the day-to-day -day life and the real sense that there's so much to explore, to uncover and discover and it's a kind of endless journey uh, in that respect. And when one takes just the, what I would like to do is just to take each of the four uh, noble truths with you this afternoon and just bring out some of the significance and uh, the depth uh, of them. And then through that, both in the listening of course and at times afterwards, hopefully there's opportunity in our life to really reflect for ourselves where we are with each one of these uh, four truths, which at the deepest level express a single truth. And I'll endeavour to come to that in a few minutes. So we just take the first one for a moment. Sometimes you will hear from some of the rather uh, orthodox uh, Buddhist, sometimes Buddhist monks or Buddhist believers, who will throw out the one line that life is suffering which is such a depressing view about life. So one assumes that the monks and others who come out must be feeling rather depressed at the time. And so the rather sweeping one-line statement is made, life is suffering. If that is the case, if that is the truth of life, is that, if that is the reality, then there is not a chance of any kind of escape from it. Because that's life. Life is suffering. What is meant is 
the looking and the exploration, and, the, and it's fairly precisely given here, of what brings, what are the conditions and the causes in life which bring suffering. And suffering, again, the umbrella concept, to cover the whole range of human difficulties, the whole spectrum of them, we're calling suffering or unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction or unease or unhappiness. And when looking at some of the primary conditions which generate this, one of them is for sure, very simple, not getting what we want. And sometimes we are such confused creatures, we are unhappy because we don't even know what we want in the first place. So we want something, but we don't know what it is. It's like sometimes one sees with little children, little boys, little girls, aged two or three, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, and crying and yelling, and then the mother or the father says, well, well, Johnny, well, Mary, what do you want? I don't know what I want. <laughs> And sometimes we carry that kind of view right through into old age. <laughs> so, one is not getting what we want. And when that happens, of course, the movement of not getting uh, what we want, and that could be more attention from somebody else. It could be too exaggerated expectations upon ourselves. It could be in the range of um, being successful. It could be, of course, in consumer goods. It could be getting back to where we were some weeks or months or years ago. It could be not succeeding in a particular goal or ambition or project or, or aim or objective that we have set up. And so wherever there is some movement in life and there's something that I want or we want and we're not getting it, the outcome of that will be some degree of unsatisfactoriness. This is life, this is what happens with us. So it's a primary condition. Second, which goes along with it of course, that once we've got what we want, we lose it. And anything that we have got, we have acquired. And that may be, it may be relationship, of course. It may be good, it may be um, reputation. It may be success in a particular area. It may be uh, money or prestige, whatever it is, that we, a house, whatever it might be that we really wanted. It's not that, ah, now I've got it. Everything from this moment on, is going to be plain sailing for the rest of one's life. Having got something, there's a vulnerability. We'll lose it, whatever it might be. Sometimes, as the Buddha uh, uh, warned, sometimes it's around youth. We are young. The this doesn't apply to the speaker. <laughs> we, we are young. <laughs> what else? Uh, healthy, energetic, handsome, or beautiful, he says. These are, these are four things which human beings love to be. Young, 
healthy, handsome or beautiful. And then we watch the um, passage of the years go by. We're not so young. And then one's children, well, might, if you have uh, children, or a young person might say to you, as my daughter said to me, what does it feel like to be as old as you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, thank you, daughter. <laughs> and those of us who are a little older, actually it doesn't feel that much different from 10, 20 or 30 years, years ago, uh, etc. Sometimes the, the looks go, the change. And, so, and therefore we lost what we had and then we become very nostalgic. I remember when. And we look at those photographs <laughs> there. And just a few moments ago before um, uh, Dominica, I, I took some photographs of the back of you just on the Yatra, just on the walk through the forest there. And then just in my room just took some photographs. One of the great values of uh, photographing indoors using the flash one of the great values is it takes out the lines of the face. Have you noticed? <laughs> you know, for a moment one could look at the photograph there, there and you think, God, I do look well. <laughs> it's a complete lie, of course, but anyway. So sometimes the losing of what we have, we think we have something, youth, handsome, energetic, whatever it, beauty or whatever. And then there's the feeling of having the loss will go with it. So there's getting, not getting what we want, as the Buddha said. Losing what we have. Another is in separation. And sometimes in that uh, separation, it's uh, painful as well. The parent has a child. And of course, when the children get into their teens, the uh, child will have uh, one foot out of the nest, so to speak and will be kicking and screaming to get out of the house as quickly as, uh, as possible and to travel, to go to university, to go and live in another country or whatever or God forbid go to India and meditate and so sometimes there's a breakaway uh, there and for the child it's a, it's a liberation, it's a, it's a freedom but for the mother or for the father, there can be you know, some, quite some unhappiness being separated from who one loves. This, this feeling of separation can be very, very uh, uh, painful. One's uh, in a relationship and the partner goes away for a week, a month, a couple of months or, or whatever. And I notice when that happens, in both from my own experience of course, and listening to others, it is often for ease, easier for the one who goes away because they're traveling, they're on the road, uh, they're hanging out on the beaches of Thailand and um, with a little yoga for good measure. And, um, and the other one is back at home working you know, 12 hours a day, five days a week and there's a separation. But, but often for the one who is waiting or the other. For the waiting one it just feels more painful and sometimes it feels uh, longer. Well the other one's having a great time and sending the text when one remembers and the other one is in the waiting mode. Or it might be the other way around of course. 
not getting what we want, said the Buddha, generates dukkha. Being separated from who and what we love generates dukkha. Losing what we have generates dukkha. And those three areas of life which you and I experience, it does take a lot of clarity, a lot of depth of inner peace, a lot of uh, uh, wisdom, to really be extremely clear. I can't always get what I want. What I have I might lose. And I will experience at times being separated from who and what I love. And that's life. It's part of life there. And then finally, it's pointed out, where there is any form of clinging will be some unsatisfactoriness. And sometimes, some people, one person saying to me uh, uh, here, here, here the other day, that it came very clear to her that how clinging and dukkha, unhappiness, really, really go together. It's the same event. And sometimes that clinging is just clinging to an idea. And then we're in conflict with another and get very angry. Sometimes the clinging is to an experience which we want to repeat again. Sometimes we're clinging to health. Or we're clinging to name and fame. Or we're uh, clinging to the idea of our authority. Or we're clinging to the idea we're not good enough, we're a failure, nothing ever works out for us. So, not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from who and what we love, and any kind of clinging, body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness, all of this. So when we look at this, it's not that life is uh, suffering, but it arises for us because the conditions are there. If the conditions are there, it will arise. It can't arise without the conditions. And, and sometimes we see too that in the very process of life, birth, ageing, pain and death. And just this morning, I, um, my um, mother, who, to her, to her credit, I thought, ten years ago, when she was 78, decided to uh, emigrate from uh, England, which of course is completely understandable, <laughs> and <coughs> I've done it myself many times, and moved to Australia, to Brisbane in Australia. And the reason uh, uh, being, she's something of a, still a, an Anglophile, you forgive her for that, and um, because my sister lives there, she said, well I've spent all my life in England and uh, near you, and now I'm going to spend the last period of my life in Australia, where your sister is, my sisters live there, her ex-husband worked for Qantas, and, and they're living in Australia. So for the last two months, my mother's been in hospital, and <clears throat> she's having um, a new knee put in. Uh, uh, there in a few months' time, she can have another plastic knee. She says, I'm just becoming all plastic. She's got valves in the heart and here and all of this. Anyway, she's eight, so she's now 88. And <clears throat> so she rang home, my home, and Peter, who's my house guest, wonderful man who looks after the house, 
sent a, a message to me, a phone yesterday. My mum rang from the hospital. Would I please ring as soon as possible? Wonder, wonders what that meant. So went to the office today. Could I use your phone? And rang the hospital and got put through. It goes through immediately to the small ward of four people. And uh, the phone rang a few times, and then this elderly man answered the phone. Yes. And I said, my name's Christopher Titmus. I'd like to speak to my mother, uh, Peggy Titmus. And uh, he said, Peggy Titmus, yes, she's not here. <laughs> I went, oh. And he said, she's in the dining hall. <laughs> and when I heard, heard him say this, I thought he said, She's in the dying hall. <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> dying hall, sir. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you never know with Australian hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> Gives a whole new meaning to down under. <laughs> <laughs> So I, <laughs> so I waited half an hour and uh, telephoned my mum and said, how are you? And she said, oh, I'm bored, I'm fed up, I just want to go back to the old people's home. And um, she's, so she can't, she's got a chest infection, she's had a couple of x-rays and they won't let her go back home, but the, the knee is getting better and it's all part of the ageing uh, process. And having just come from uh, Israel, as I mentioned to you, where um, I've been a couple of times to, well, many times, but a couple of times to Jerusalem for Seder, it's the Passover. It's the time when the Jewish community celebrate the uh, release um, from uh, Egypt. And uh, Moses led them out of Egypt, the, 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 the liberation from uh, Egypt in, to the desert and then on to the Promised Land. So there's the Passover feast every Saturday in usually around the month of uh, uh, April uh, of every year. All the family come together. It's a five-hour uh, event. And one of the families that I uh, go to and I've been to Seder, the, the uh, grandmother, who's the grandmother of my uh, uh, good friend, she is a... Uh, uh, now she's 102 years of age and still very um, lively and sparkly uh, there and is in this extraordinary situation where her son who is 80 years of age is very sick and uh, um, and yet the future is quite uncertain with regard to him and you know 80 years is you know fairly good length of life but of course it's the mother and it's her son and, you know, sometimes as we, we look, and even if we, who knows with our life, how long we will uh, live. And the, the Buddha used this birth, ageing, pain and, and death. Just to be aware that this process, which applies to the body and this uh, movement through life, even if we live a very, very long life, 
doesn't necessarily mean to say that all the last years of it will necessarily be easy. And this is the huge challenge in which we live. And Dharma teachings is not to run away from life, not to escape into any kind of uh, uh, idealism or blissful realm, but learning to be with the process of life, to face it, to work with it, and of course in a way of uh, liberation of the being through non-clinging. In coming into the uh, second noble truth, there's a, there's a, I find, um, a very beautiful passage in the text. And this passage uh, in the text is one of the clearest and most insightful reminders of what conditions arising are all about. And it emerged from um, a yogi named Kasapa, not the one who, not the Kasapa of, uh, who was with the Buddha, but another uh, yogi named Kasapa. And he had a simple question. And I think if we could take this question or questions to heart very, very deeply, it would really would change and transform the way we look at many, many situations. It's an extraordinary sequence of questions and the Buddha's response I find are very, very significant. And the, quest the question starts off. The Kasapa says to the Buddha, This suffering which I experience, do I bring it upon myself? Am I the cause of my own suffering? <coughs> Do I just make myself unhappy? Is it my fault? Do I have to take responsibility for all this mess that my life gets into? I'm just putting the single sentence in, uh, in the, a little variation in the language. And the Buddha looks the man straight in the eye and he says, Don't say that, Kasapa. Don't say that. So then Kasapa says to him, well, if I'm not bringing all this suffering on myself, I'm not the cause of it, you know, I'm not doing this to myself, making myself unhappy and miserable, then are others doing it? Those others could be a person or persons in the present, or it could be from the past, you know, my, my, my mother didn't love me, etc. And, and no, no, so various people in my life, both past and present, they have made me like I am. And the outcome of that is that I'm unhappy and I'm suffering and the cause for it is others. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Kasama. Then he said, well, if it's not myself and it's not others, is it both together? So it's some bits of other people, their stuff, Something in myself that's arising, and between another and myself, I make myself unhappy. Something from them, something from me goes together and I become unhappy. There. And similarly, something from them, something me, and, I, and thus I make others unhappy. And the Buddha said, Don't say that, Kasapa. So then Kasapa stops. He says, It's not me, it's not others doing it to me. It's not a bit of them and a bit of me doing it to uh, turn together. Is it then just the, the, the Pali word, uh, 
think it is, something like that, has about four or five different meanings to it. Is it just by chance? These things just happen. Not my fault, not her fault, his fault, not both. just happens. It's just fate. It's just my destiny to suffer. It's um, the hand of God. It's a punishment for all my sins. Um, it's just uh, the circumstances. Don't say that. Casper. So then Casper is a little bit confused. Doesn't that? Not me, not other, not both. And not neither. And there's no other choice. So, uh, so then Casper says to him, so what you're really saying is actually there's no such thing as suffering. <laughs> Once again, don't say that, Casper. <laughs> so there is suffering. Oh yes, there is. Where does the suffering come from? Then the Buddha says, it comes from it, dependently arising conditions. The conditions are there for it to arise. This is the second noble truth. The conditions are there for it to arise. If the condition or conditions change, it cannot arise. And this rather profound uh, insight as I say, I regard it as important. Not only important for our own exploration, but also at every single level. Whether it's the therapist with the client, whether it's the, the group in the workshop, whether it's the political leader uh, and the nation state and the sense of others are the problem. Any kind of view which arises in which the view is self, other, both or neither will be problematic. It won't be seen clearly. And it's a great challenge for us when there is an issue, when there is a problem. Instead of getting into the self, other, both, neither syndrome, which we easily do, and one of the neither is, oh, it's karma. There's another popular Eastern, oh, it's just karma. But rather looking and seeing, what are, what are the conditions that brought this about? What's going on here? And then, once we inquire in that way, there isn't the opportunity, nor the need and nor necessity, to blame. When the self is involved, blame will come. Moving out of the self-viewpoint, which is very strong, of course it is, moving out of the self-viewpoint may give us a real opportunity to look in fresh ways. What are the conditions? What's bringing this about? And sometimes that needs, as we were listening in the inquiry yesterday evening, how important it is to find that when we're a bit burnt out, when, the, when our resources have really gone down, then there's, there's a loss. And one of the losses that we experience 
is a creative approach to difficulties. We, be, we become rather numb. And we need that vitality in the interest. What are the conditions which are arising? And that sense of effort is, has in its deeper meaning, what is a creative approach to dealing with these issues? Or this issue? Need to be creative. We listened the, listen the other evening, not unusual, for sometimes addiction, which arises, which is the reinforcement of a particular desire again and again and again and again. And sometimes we need some point that marks the change. And that creative approach, sometimes it might be in the expression uh, of the ritual, the, the burying of the packet of cigarettes. It, it marks the turning point. It, it's, it's a decisive moment in which one says, this is finished, and in that creative ritual that, that uh, takes place, something fresh can begin. And I think we need to be rather open and receptive in ourselves and in each other and with relationships, whatever they are, to the use of a creative ritual which helps us to change the view, open up our life, or to let go of the old, whatever it might be. And all, the, all of that is the addressing, because the third noble truth, that means the truth of the noble ones, of a noble way of life, is deeply committed to the exploration of what is the resolution, that's the third truth, what is the resolution of issues of life. Where, where is it? What will show it? We may not always have the resources inside of ourselves. It's not that there's some kind of big truth stuck behind our personality and if we can only get our personality out of the way for a few minutes some great big truth would just loom out and jump out at us and jump all over everybody uh, there. And the idea, the view and the belief system that there is some kind of structures or personalities and then somehow inside of us there's some kind of Buddha nature or um, uh, what, what, what are some of the other popular words these days? True nature. True self, higher self, uh, essence, um, original nature, original face, uh, who we really are. There's so many of them doing the rounds, uh, etc. I use some of them myself, I know. And, um, and there's sometimes there is the wish, there is the idea, with all this is going on, my stuff, my dukkha, my samsaric existence, my unresolved karma, my appalling personality, or whatever. And if I can get through that, then I'm going to get behind it, and then somewhere behind it is something just marvellous, which is going to be the answer to all my prayers, and it's worth putting up with all these terrible retreats, and all my knee pain to my wandering mind, because eventually I'll get to something behind it, Something marvellous there. 
And so we live in this duality of in front of me is all this wretched stuff, but behind that, all of that is my lovely Buddha nature. <laughs> and there's so many people just waiting to meet it, including myself. And I think this view is, is, <laughs> is severely problematic. And, and it, it, again, it would seem very strange if we go around and say, well, how do you do? Um, like you to, I'd like to introduce you to my Buddha nature. You know? <laughs> <laughs> People would be sending for those men in the white coats. <laughs> so it, it's a strange phenomena that there's something essence behind something else and this, this thought, uh, this, this view. And rather... Rather have that before, behind, in front of and back of, or whatever, and all the duality and problematic aspect that goes on this. What is this resolution about? Well, is there a potential for us to have a, a great sense of the freedom of the being, in, in which one isn't trying to get behind or beyond anything? One just isn't interested in, in making that split, that separateness of, as it were, nirvana from samsara, if one uses Buddhist language for a moment. And, and therefore the exploration of life is genuinely as it is. Just the way it shows itself. Just as it, in the way that it actually unfolds for us. And sometimes there may be a taste Actually, life is unproblematic. It's not really a problem. Birth isn't really a problem. Aging isn't really a problem. Pain isn't really a problem. Death isn't really a problem. The expressions of thought and feelings are not really a problem. The perceptions are not a problem. The sensations in the body are not a problem. Consciousness, its presence or its absence, is not really a problem. So there's this unfolding process which goes on. And when we look at any particular features of it, it, in itself, it's not really a problem. Anything which is really looked at is not really difficult. And, and sometimes we see, we, we come into the meditation hall, and we will say to ourselves and, and to myself or to Nico, oh, I had so many thoughts. So what? You have so many thoughts. <laughs> That's being human. Trees has so many leaves. <laughs> I mean, how many look out there and say, God, there are too many leaves on that tree? <laughs> Human, being, human beings think trees grow leaves <laughs> etc so when the wanting and the desire comes in then the number of thoughts becomes a problem when the desire is for less thoughts the problem is not the leaves it's the way we look at it the problem is not the thought it's the way we look and Again, with that, one of the kind of extraordinary things about thought is 
the moment we sit on the meditation cushion and we say, right, and uh, Nicole was uh, giving the instructions during the week, I'm going to sit here and I'm really going to give full, total attention to thought. Mm. <laughs> and as soon as there's full attention, have you noticed, not a single thought appears in the mind. <laughs> the moment you're ready for thought, finally, after all these hours and days of dukkha, 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 okay, thought, now I'm ready for you. I'm going to really look at you. And you you've got the samadhi, you've got the concentration, your posture is there, your knees are comfortable, your back is straight, your energy is there, you're totally prepared to look at thought. <laughs> And it just refuses to appear. Have you noticed? (laughs) (laughs) So before one had the problem of too many thoughts, and now one's got the problem of having no thought. (laughs) (laughs) There's never any peace. (laughs) we, we We are truly bizarre human beings. And then, then one falls into despair. Oh my God, there's no thoughts coming. I was already. Oh God, they're the thoughts. <laughs> and so thought is, is so ephemeral, it's so insubstantial, it's so nothingness. How could a thought, a little thing just <laughs> popping in and out of consciousness, how could that be a problem for anybody? <laughs> There's no substance to it, there's no selfness, there's no issue to it, it just might be a little word. <laughs> and somehow or other, in all of this, we, we, we made it into something. And we know we have, the moment we want something else. The moment there is the one thing as arising, oh, I want to be with my breath. I want to be in the moment. The moment... The, ra- the arising of the wanting and the thought with regard to the wanting starts, then the thought itself becomes problematic. There can be times when we just see this phenomenal process that's going on with us. But the bizarre thing is to be human. And in looking at the exploration of sometimes we kind of just let go. We just see this, this unfolding life is just going on and in the preciousness of the times when we're not um, immersed in the desire. Desire means peace of mind. Desire in Dharma language is when the peace of mind is dependent on the outcome as a particular meaning. So sometimes we, we might say Oh, I want a cup of tea. doesn't mean to say that that want is a problem. It has a very special meaning in Dharma. It's the wanting. But if I can't get a cup of tea, I start getting agitated. Or I get a cup of tea and it's not the taste that I want. <laughs> then, this, this is called wanting and desire. We often know the wanting and desire by the relationship to the outcome. But many times, you and I, we use the language of wanting. You know? I want to go and sit. I just want to take a, a walk in the nature. And if the view is um, we're 
quite content whether we act or whether we don't. Understand? We're quite content to say, oh, oh I'd like to take, go for a, a walk, but, uh, oh, there's no time, there's a sitting. Example. That being at ease, whether we can take a walk or not, that being at ease, it's not wanting and desire in the, sen- the Dharma sense. You say, oh, feel a bit thirsty, um, but uh, can't get a cup of tea or a glass of water at this time. We're completely at ease whether we can follow it through or not. That means we're not dependent on the result. When we're completely at ease, then this is just natural movement of life. We still use the language of wanting. In the Pali language, there are different words. We might say it's the intention, and there's the skillful action, and we take a walk, we go and have a cup of tea, we, we feel a bit tired, we go and take a rest, or, or whatever. And the language changes, but in English language, we use you know, much the same words. So when we're talking of wanting or the desire for, when it's, it's problematic when our happiness and contentment is dependent on the result. And when there's a movement, we might still call it wanting, but there's no dependency on the result. Quite, ease, quite at ease either way. Then this is not wanting and desire in the dukkha sense of the second noble truth. <clears throat> but important to explore this and to look at this with ourselves and obviously through our experience. Let's say sometimes there is a genuine sense in life of the freedom of the being there. And if there isn't, then we explore and we look at the way, what will make it possible for us. <coughs> what, what, what are supportive conditions for us? And it's formulated in this language of the Eightfold Path. But in a way it's saying, what is a way of life? A way. What is a way of life which contributes to fulfillment, contributes to an exploration of life, which con- contributes to a really wise and intelligent life? And sometimes with that, you take various areas of uh, life for a moment, we might take um, work or, or, or whatever it is. Sometimes there are different pressures in life which are coming to us at different times. And they will come. How do we respond to those pressures? And sometimes we are waiting for the pressure to be over. And when the pressure is, oh, life is easier now, there's not so much pressure, there are not so many demands on me. Is this a dependency on our circumstance? Is it, is it a dependency on the outside world being supportive for us? And it's rather like being here as well. Definitely, hopefully, your good presence here and the world around you, around all of us, is supportive. It's supportive for silence, supportive for nature, supportive for meditation, it's supportive for inner inquiry, for listening to teachings, it's very, very supportive. 
and, and through all of that, hopefully, two of the important features of the way will be established. More relaxation, calmness, creativity coming through, energy, less pain and confusion, less distress, and the sense of one, the vitality of one's life. And the environment here gives support to that for you and for me. Also, hopefully, there is some clarity and insight. There is some recognition of areas that you and I might need to work on, that really need to look into, and that's all part of the way. So, calmness is one feature of the way. Insight is another feature of the way. Yeah. And the important thing with this is that your good presence here, if it's very dependent on the environment and just relying very much on the environment to be supportive, come Friday lunchtime you're in for a shock because the environment is just about to end. The retreat form will end there. If it's not so dependent on the environment, in this case called the retreat form, and one's practice is deepening one's practice, greater calm and insight and clarity, greater sense for insight and understanding there, and that deepening inside of us, that is what we want to stay steady enough in different environments. We use the most supportive one which is possible. And in Dharma, this is the maximum support for a human being for calm and clarity and insight. The best conditions. Two, three thousand years of these kind of conditions. Nature, silence, practices, teachings. And that gives real support to the way. We want it to be deep enough and our own experience will tell us. So that the sense of something deep and beautiful is steady with us, no matter what the environment. And when it's steady for, enough for us, no matter what the environment, this is called wisdom. This is the wisdom. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with great liberation. <laughs>